Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Call of Leadership podcast. We're going to listen to powerful stories and advice from those in our Michigan community who answered the call of leadership. I am your host, Cliff Duvinois, and today my guest is the executive director of the 211 Northeast Michigan program, where she serves over 1 million people in 23 counties. She's also a proud advocate in areas of public health education and activism, where her work was recognized by the Michigan Health Policy Champion Award. She is a trainer for the Bridges Out of Poverty program, where she was described as a speaker who captivates her audience. She's on the board of the Mid-Michigan's Big Brother, Big Sister program. She's also on the City Council for Gladwin. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, Sarah Kyle. Sarah, how are you? Oh, Cliff, I'm great. I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I could have read your bio, I think, for another three or four minutes. So thank you for everything that you do for the community. Well, you're welcome. And thank you for not doing that. <laughs> thank you. It would make me blush a little. Oh, great. Why don't, you, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Beaverton, Beaverton, Michigan. I stayed there most of my life until uh, after college. And then I moved to uh, Midland for a short time to do some work there. And then moved to Gladwin and absolutely passionately in love with my community and, and the, the city and county of Gladwin, which is where I am now. And hopefully, if God is willing, I will stay here serving for as long as I live. And serving is a, an interesting word, and, and I definitely want to delve uh, into that a little bit more. You you went to Central Michigan and you studied psychology there. Why did you Why did you choose psychology? <laughs> it's a funny uh, story. So I wanted to go into, this may sound a little out there. I wanted to go into sex therapy. I wanted to go into counseling and really work with women who had been sexually assaulted and abused. It was like this, when I was younger, I felt like, how could someone more take a piece of you or, or, or damage a piece of you than your, your own sexuality, your own body. And I wanted to, to really work with women. I wanted to be a counselor and that was the goal. And as soon as I graduated CMU, I started a master's program and then also started volunteering for a sexual assault response team where I was called to the hospital when there was a sexual assault to be an advocate. And I realized that I am way too uh, sensitive to handle what was happening. So the team that I was I was volunteering for, through the training, I'm like a black and white thinker. I'm like, how many times do we get called when we're on call for a weekend? You know, I need to know, I need to plan, I need to. And they're like, the likelihood is you'll never get a call. The likelihood is you'll never, you know, maybe one call a weekend at the most, and the first weekend I was on call, I got four calls and it was overwhelming and only funny in the fact that it was like a higher power saying, this is not the plan <laughs> that this is not the plan for you. Uh, you may have an idea that this is what you want, but this is not what you're created for. I didn't have the heart for it. It wasn't a true calling. I just, uh, I just wanted to help folks. And because of that background, I had a concentration in uh, human sexuality. So it led me into teaching sex ed from an abstinence perspective, which I absolutely fell in love with. I fell in love with working with young people and, 
you know, public health and looking at the community from a, a larger perspective and trying to say, how do we make this place better? How do we protect our youth? How do we, you know, encourage our youth to protect themselves? Yeah, I, I just, <laughs> it was not the plans I had when I was 18, 19, 20, but I'm glad that, you know, my life kind of took a different course. And I, and I know you kind of talked about this before. You've been very active in helping people as far back as, as I could research. And I know in college that you did some, you know, you did some work there and it's just been a part of the the fabric of what it is that you do. And I know you mentioned this briefly about, about working in, in health and health advocacy. What, what started you down that path? Part of it is, you know, I was raised in a family where giving back to community was just part of your, you know, our DNA. And I have a pastor as a father. Please don't laugh at me that I'm a pastor's kid because I know I've heard all the jokes. But it, it started out with just helping people. And every time I had a, a career change, the went, the lens got larger, right? So I went from, you know, very specific issues of, you know, sex education to I went into teaching, you know, young people about alcohol and other drugs and that turned into a community focus where we were trying to get the community to offer better incentives for young people to not take part in drugs and alcohol. And then that work because of, so there's county health rankings. They came out, I believe, 2010. And the communities that I was serving were the lowest ranked in Michigan. We were very unhealthy. And almost every piece of the unhealth really had something to do with, you know, substance abuse or it was something I could work on. It was something I could, could jump into. So I was hired by our health department to work on health advocacy from there to two on one, where I've been saying for years, we are in public health and people are starting to hear that. And they're starting to listen that it's called social determinants of health. If you can't get your electric bill paid. You are not going to be focused on, you know, your wellness checks and, you know, we're, we're a piece of the picture. There's, it's a big puzzle, but really it's about serving people on a broader and broader scale. And at two-on-one, that's what I get to do. I get to serve, you know, over a million people in 23 counties. And I do take it seriously that I, I believe we are in public health. We're advocating just as much for public health as, you know, our local physicians and health departments. And you're, you know, when you're talking about people paying the, you know, or having trouble paying the electric bill and stuff like that, is this, is this kind of what, what led you to first off the, the bridges of poverty program? And, and second off for an audience that may not know, uh, could you talk about the bridges of poverty program? It was an opportunity. It's, I, I really do believe in like a divine, you know, I believe in God. I believe that, you know, the things that we do are are really set in stone, you know, maybe before we even know. Um, but it was an opportunity that fell in my lap. I was on a community work group and someone was going to go and get this training and they had to back out. And I was like, I talked to my boss and because it fit in with what I was doing, they're like, oh, go get this training. So Bridges Out of Poverty is a way to look at generational poverty, like a cultural competency. So we we do not see people as problems to be fixed. And that's a big issue to me. Like people are not problems. And when we start looking at people, oh, we need to fix poverty. You know, people in poverty need to do this, that, and the other thing. It's very uh, demeaning. 
It is not respectful. And Bridges Out of Poverty, like I said, is a cultural competency. It is understanding that generational poverty is often a completely different culture. And we don't jump into other cultures and start fixing them and telling them how they need to be more like, you know, the mainstream culture or the accepted culture. Instead, we say, you know, if we're going to serve you, how do we serve you best? And that's what Bridges Out of Poverty is all about. And, you know, I just fell in love with it because, you know, a huge portion of the folks that live in our communities and the folks that, you know, many of us in health and human service work with, they are struggling with generational poverty, which you see the world differently. I was raised in a blue collar, middle class family. So I never felt uncomfortable going into a bank. That's where we went to deposit the $10 check we got from grandma every birthday and Christmas. But folks who maybe didn't have that same experience, why do we expect that they're going to feel comfortable the same way I feel comfortable with a bank account? And to cast my judgment on someone else because they didn't have the same upbringing that I do is, it's disrespectful. And I see that all the time. Like, how do we, I hear it from politicians. I hear it from social services. How do we fix poverty? Well, are we talking about poverty? Because really it sounds like you're saying you want to fix people. People are not problems. Um, And that's what I love about Bridges. And I've been a trainer now for quite a while. I think I was dubbed three years ago, a lifetime certified trainer. I've done it all over the state. And it's just something I still fall in love with. And it's it Bridges Out of Poverty is a book by Ruby Payne and Phil Duvall. Uh, anyone can pick it up. It's it's a great book uh, because it really, it respects human beings. And I think that's what we need to do in every aspect of our life. You know, and it's interesting that it's the, the, the term being used as generational poverty, because I think for a lot of people out there that it's it's very cyclic. Kids will repeat the patterns of their parents. You know, a lot of the times that the, the the decisions that people are making may not be the best decisions. They may not know any different, but their kids pick up on that and they run with it. So, is this kind of like what you're talking about? It's exactly what I'm talking about. So, I often in my training use the example: you don't shame me for being in middle class and not leaving middle class. And I could become a millionaire if I just put my nose to the grindstone and beans and rice every night and lived in a smaller house and drove a different car. You know, I could save up my money. I could do, but this is the lifestyle I know. But we shame folks who are in poverty because we feel that it's okay to shame someone. You know, it's about what you know. And if someone decides even after all the working in the world with them, if they don't want to leave poverty, that's not your choice to make. That's their choice. And, you know, again, it goes back to relationship and respect. And that's what we need to focus on. And if we're serving people and we're not focusing on relationship and respect, I don't know why we would be in this field. And I think you and I could talk about this for a while because I'm I'm definitely passionate about finance. But I, I do got to ask you, you've had this career where you've really been, you know, supporting people and reaching out to people you know, working with them in adv- advocacy and then it seems like you you took a little bit of a turn and became a radio DJ. <laughs> what prompted you to do that? <laughs> I, was, I was sitting in a, uh, a a PAC meeting, a political action committee meeting. I had been sitting with someone who said, you have a great voice for radio. And I'm like, whatever. <laughs> you know. Well, if you ever think about radio, please come and talk to me. I'm like, oh, that's not going to happen. And uh, we we sat at a few more meetings, and 
I was like, why not? I mean, I don't know. It, again, things, you know, there's a path, there's a plan. I said, yes, I tried it. It was so much fun. And it's, <laughs> it is a weird, it was a, this great radio station out of Gladwin. And I learned so much about how to communicate better, how to think before I speak, how to talk with a smile and people can hear a smile. And it, again, it is it is a one-off, but it was so much fun. And I got to be there for a few years. And then when I became the executive director at 211, I just simply just didn't have the time to continue it. But I still, yeah, I still, they still have some of my ads that run. And I, it's, it's, it's awesome. I mean, I know it, it, it's trippy to hear yourself on the radio. And even though I was on the radio for a few years, it's still like, whoa, that's my voice. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I was in Long Beach. It was probably about a year and a half ago. I, I lived in California for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. And about a year ago, year and a half ago, through a weird confluence of events, I started chatting with this guy. And he said to me, you have a million dollar voice. And I looked at him and I said, excuse me? And he goes, you got a million dollar voice. He says, you need to be on the radio. And I never thought of myself as having a radio voice. And he and I started talking and finally I had to ask him, I'm like, you know, who are you? (laughs) And uh, he he says, are you familiar with 89.1 jazz? And I'm like, yeah, that's on my car all the time. And then I instantly knew who he was. He was the DJ in the afternoon who ran the jazz. I listen to jazz like all the time. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I couldn't believe it. I was sitting here talking to this, you know, talking to this jazz D- DJ, and he's like, you know, he says, "I never do this, but I'm going to give you my card, and when you move back to Michigan, I want you to reach out to me and tell me that you're, you know, we're working in broadcasting again." So once this podcast gets pushed out, true to my word, I'm going to reach back out to him again. But you okay. know, it's just, it's funny how people just look at you and be like, "Yeah, you should be on radio." It's like really? (laughs) What? You know, you don't think about your voice. And, you know, if it's not something you've ever thought of before, it's a compliment. And, you know, there was even after I had left the radio, there were folks, advertisers who'd call and say, well, we want Sarah's voice. And I'm like, what? That's awesome. (laughs) It hasn't happened (laughs) in, you know, a couple of years, but it's still, it, it's something you don't think about. I always thought I sounded like Charlie Brown when I was recording. So... (laughs) There you go. You were working as a DJ and you were offered the position as executive director at 211. You decided to take it. Why why did you why did you go that route? So the path was weird. I was uh, on the board for 211 for a few years um, from 2009 through the end of 2013 and my job at the time I, it, they would just wouldn't let me you know, take the time to be on the board anymore. They had other things they wanted me to focus on. So I had to resign. And a couple months later, the executive director resigned from 211. And they contacted me and asked me to apply. And I thought they were just trying to be nice, like they needed a bigger application pool. I get it. That's cool. Um, so uh, I went and I applied. And I went through the interview. And, you know, I had sat on the board with these folks. So I wasn't nervous at all. I told them the truth was if they could find someone who loves 211 more than me, then hire them because 211, no matter where I went, you know, I had two different jobs at the time. It was my passion, like one place where everyone can go. Like it made my job easier at, at other places because I didn't have to try to remember, well, well, you need what? Well, what agency provide? You know, I didn't have to do that. I could say, 
here, just 211. And there are no qualifications to call us. Like you have to be under a certain income or you have to have this, you know, debilitation or you have to, anyone can, can take part. So I was always really passionate about it. And uh, actually, because, because of today, it's been six years since I was offered the job. It was April 1st and I got the call from the board president and I'm like, come on, Tom, let's be real. (laughs) I'm sure you guys found someone a lot better than me. And he's like, no, we, we want you, we want, we want you to take the job. And I was like, whatever April fools you think you're pulling, this is not funny, man. And he said, Sarah, (laughs) there was not one person we could have interviewed who has the passion that you have. And I accepted the job and it has been really, I would hate to say this, but the truth is it's been a dream ever since, even on hard days. It's, it's a pleasure to serve. We do good work and I'm proud of it. I bet. And for some of the people that are in the audience and may not know what 211 is, could you tell us what that, what that program is, what the business is? Yeah. Oh, I could do this all day. So (laughs) 211 is, I know it's a three digit number you call to find help in your community. So you dial 911 for emergency, but for crisis, you don't know how to pay your electric bill. You don't know where the local food pantry is. Um, you dial 211. So what it does is it gives folks the opportunity to not have to figure it on their own. They will will connect folks to local resources that are available. We're the roadmap to get help. So sometimes it can be confusing because we're not the check writers. We're not, but we're the folks who get to hold your hand down the road. And unfortunately, we have to say sometimes, I'm sorry, there's nothing out there because you know, we have communities that are struggling, which means the nonprofit world is struggling and with lower donations to our United Ways and to our nonprofits, folks are struggling. But I can be guaranteed because I know my staff well, I know my team, that at least you got someone who was compassionate, who listened to you, who respected you. And even if we have to say, I'm sorry, there's nothing in your community for this need, is there something else I can find for you? You know, is there more that we can do for you? And we're available 24 seven. We're free. We're confidential. So it also takes that burden of, I don't, I don't, I don't want to call someone and ask for help because I've never done that before. We're, we're your answer because we're not going to judge you and we're going to help you with whatever we can and even navigate you if we need to. And, not just give you the referral, but sometimes, man, you seem pretty upset. Can I, let me make that transfer for you. Let me call that agency for you and get you on the phone with them. So it's just, it's an all around amazing service. And in times like this, when we're living in crises, we're also crisis response. So don't dial 911 to find toilet paper. <laughs> don't dial 911 to find out if there's a road closed because of a flood. You know, we want to make sure that folks have a place to go that's safe and, and reliable and there all the time for them. And that's who we are. And that's what 211 does. So how could you not be proud of an agency like that? How could you not be excited that, you know, again, we may have to say, I'm sorry that service isn't available in your area, but at least we treated you respectfully. At least we listened and we were there to help if we could. And I would assume that because you're, you're, you know, two one one really is about assisting people. The time of this recording, we're basically in the middle of this COVID nineteen lockdown thing. 
Are you guys just super swamped right now? Yes. <laughs> so uh, because, you know, you don't know what you need until you need it. And folks who've never had to ask for help with the high unemployment rate, folks don't know where to go. They've never had to ask for help. They are leaning to us, which is great. We have a revigoration, invigoration, excuse me, in our communities of you know, hey, we always knew two one was there, but now we want to remind people because, again, we don't want them dialing nine one one if they just need toilet paper. We don't want them dialing nine one one if they just need to know if the local food pantry is still open. They can just send folks to two one one. So, yeah, in cases of disaster and crisis, our our phone lines uh, are are busier, but it's a responsibility that we take seriously. So we still do our best to make sure folks are treated well, treated respectfully, and given the time they need if they call us. That's absolutely wonderful. And and I know that you've done a lot of work. So my my next question might be a little bit hard for you to pin down. Uh-oh. Uh, but but <laughs> is there a time, you know, that that you ever thought to yourself, and like I said, I know you've serviced a lot of people, but is there a time that you ever really impacted somebody or thought to yourself, wow, I'm, I'm really making a difference. Can I, I'm going to be really honest and say, I don't do that enough where I look behind me and say, look what I've done. Um, and maybe that's not good self-care and that's not good, you know, positive positivity talk or whatever. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm not good at that. And because I always see the next thing, like what more can we do? What more can I do? What more can I offer my community? What more, how more can I serve the folks that we, that we have to answer to? You know, there's a lot of times where I see the failures and they push me even further, but I I think it is, it is definitely a shortcoming that I have seen in my life before that I forget to sometimes look at those really cool things that we've gotten to do. I know that's not probably what I should say. I should have like a canned answer like, well, in 2000 and this we, you know, I don't have that and I probably should. I'm proud every day that we serve, but I don't have that pinnacle. Instead, I'm always looking forward and saying, what more can we do? What more can I do? How can we serve more people? I think if I could give out awards for best answer, you would get one right there. <laughs> well, but it's also not that it's not always the healthiest answer, right? Because especially times like this where I can't, you know, I can't get off this call or this Zoom or this process because, or I can't say no and say, you know what, I need to have a life too. So I'm not going to answer emails until I crash and I'm not going to wake up and answer emails before I, you know, get my coffee or brush my teeth. (laughs) That's not always the healthiest thing, but I do know it is something that, again, it pushes me further to say, so I, I don't mean to, to be a downer, but I am single and I don't have kids. So I kind of look at the world a little differently. I don't have another generation coming behind me who I can leave a legacy with, right? My legacy, and I take it very seriously, is my lifetime. I have just the time I have on this planet to make my mark. Like I, I can't also hope that my kids will <laughs> make a mark or I have one lifetime. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make that mark. And I take it seriously because, again, I don't, 
I don't have a generation or two generations or three generations to think, well, <laughs> you know, I'll leave a mark here and then they'll leave some and I get to to take some credit for that. I just have this lifetime. And I think about that all the time. Like, how can I make sure that when I leave this planet, it better be a, a nicer place. It better be a place that serves people more. It better be a place that's nicer, cleaner, you know, those things. I Again, I know that sounds pretty down, but I take that as a it's a motivation. No, I don't, I don't take that as a downer at all. I think it's very admirable that somebody, you know, believes strongly in that they want to leave the the world in a better place than they found it. Well, isn't that, I hope that's what we all do. Um, but I just, you know, it, it's, it's heightened because I, you know, I, I can't teach my kids to, you know, pick up trash on the road when they're getting their mail because I'm not going to have them. So I, I have to pick up all the trash I see when I go get my mail because, that's my responsibility. And I better make this place an awesome, an awesome planet that I leave. Yeah. And no doubt all of your work and all the different uh, advocacy that you have done serving on this, the city council. And I know you, uh, you have done a stint or you're doing a stint on the school board. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's a regional school board. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's just absolutely amazing everything that you're doing. And and I know that there are a lot of people out there in the, the community that are grateful for, you know, the two one one service and all the work that you guys are doing, especially in a climate like now. Yeah, I hope so. I really hope again, that folks know that we are right now, the DNA of two one one is to be here for you. So our tagline has been no matter what, no matter when, excuse me, no matter what, no matter when 211 is there because we take it seriously. We're here for you. Call us. You know, there's not a wrong, we get some weird calls, but we handle them with grace and we might have to correct people sometimes like, oh, I'm so sorry. I actually don't know if your local grocery store has stocked up on bread yet, but you know, would you like some information on your food pantry to see if they have bread? So yeah, it's, it is pretty cool to be able to serve in that way. For our audience members who may want to connect with you or follow what you're doing online or anything, what would be what would be the best way for them to do that? So I'm pretty old school. <laughs> I'm pretty much on Facebook. I do have a website, uh, sarahkyle.com. I'm not as, you know, as much as I like to serve, I don't like to uh, try to promote myself. So it's not like I'm on there changing things. But look me up on Facebook. So facebook.com slash sarahkyle and if, especially if you're in Michigan, I'm, I'm going to accept your friend request. If you have lots of friends in common, I'm going to accept it. And even if you just want to send me a message and, you know, ask me about Bridges Out of Poverty or 211 or, you know, being a city council person, I love encouraging people to run for public office. It's so, such a huge passion of mine because we make big changes locally and those things are important. So I'd love to to connect with folks in any way possible, but Facebook is probably the best way to get me publicly. Awesome. And for our audience, we'll make sure to have those links in the show notes down below. Sarah, it's been a real treat having you on the podcast today. Thank you for carving time out for us. Cliff, I could not be more thrilled. And I um, am just grateful that you reached out and I hope that your audience, you know, they learn so much about leadership because I can't wait to listen to your podcasts. Excellent. Thanks, Sarah. Talk to you soon. Hey everyone, before you go, if you want to get these episodes delivered straight to your inbox, then come over to callofleadership.com and sign up for our free email newsletter that includes all kinds of goodies. I'll catch you in the next episode.